Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 66th episode of the Notacast entitled Only in Dreams, an analysis of Game of Thrones Brand 7, in which Maester Lewin assures Bran and Rickon that their nightmares about their father's death are totally meaningless. And of course, he's proven 100% correct, because when is Maester Lewin wrong in this story? When are the maesters ever wrong in this story? <laughs> and uh, Only in Dreams is the name of the the big, epic, lighter-waving closing track on Weezer's first album. And I always think of that song when I when I uh, read this chapter. It's it's a you know big, over-the-top, melodramatic song, but there's a melancholy, emotional core to it that definitely fits a Game of Thrones brand seven. I did not know you were a Weezer fan. Me too. And that's actually my favorite Weezer song, Only in Dreams. Only in Dreams. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. The rest of the episode is just going to be the Jeff Covers Weezer Hour. <laughs> that's right. That's, I, I, we could. We could do that. Patreon special episode about Weezer. We'll be seeing all of the classics. <laughs> Coming right up. Coming that's right up. Right. Absolutely. So this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, which is a new name from him. Thank you for the new name. It's great. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves. Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Warden of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers. Lord Baby the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zors. Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high-bearded priest, the blue-ringed octoling, Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, and our newest member of the small council, Lady Zena Valerian, who we actually got to meet at the uh, Fire and Blood event back in November 2018. So it's a pleasure having you on our small council, Lady Zena. Thank you very much to Lady Zena. Welcome to the council. And thank you to the rest of our counselors very much. Absolutely. Our spoiler warning, we'll be talking potentially about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck and egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from a sworn sword patron, Sir Javi M., who asks, Hi, in a 2002 A Feast for Crows synopsis that appeared in Amazon, the text has a few interesting departures from the current A Song of Ice and Fire story. Number one, quote, while the remaining northern lords war endlessly with each other. Two, quote, and the ironmen of the isles attack the dread fort. And three, quote, Daenerys trains her growing dragons and learns from Barristan the secrets of her father, her brother Rhaegar, and other matters that will culminate at Starfall. The three pieces are nice, but the last element is especially interesting. Daenerys and Starfall? Learning secrets of the past? And that is from 2002, only three years before the publication of the book. This interesting information was brought to me by my friend Elio Garcia, and he confirmed that the synopsis was truly published in Amazon in 2002, and George asked to remove it. The rest of the info predicts more or less what happens in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. What do you think about it? Well, thank you, Sir Javi, for the question. Javi does a great work in the fandom, and we always appreciate his input. So what do you think about those little nuggets from uh, The Feast for Crow that wasn't, Jeff? You know, it's it's funny. Javi wants to talk about the uh, matters culminating at Starfall, but I it really piqued my interest about the Ironmen attacking the Dreadfort because what storyline was featured in season four, but Yara Greyjoy attacking the Dreadfort in an attempt to save Theon Greyjoy? Was this an element where the, where the showrunners and the, the scriptwriters for season four were like, hey, 
George had this great idea. He abandoned it. So we, why don't we pursue that idea? And um, we kind of saw the um, consequence of pursuing abandoned George ideas in that scene, which was not very good. And accordingly to uh, and, and according to Brian Cogman, who was the writer for that specific episode, that scene was supposed to be much longer, more in depth and much more impactful. But unfortunately, due to budget restraints and constraints, they weren't able to actually film the full scene the way they wanted to film it. So it could have been something amazing, but instead it was... Um, Shirtless Ramsey and his dogs chasing the Ironborn away, which was uh, less than satisfying, let's say. So one of the most one of the most season five esque moments in season four, and yeah, that's that's definitely a situation where you can see, oh, this is why George abandoned this plotline. But uh, yeah, so what are your what are your takes on on the that kind of abandoned a storyline on the whole? Uh, yeah, it's interesting, right? So learning from Barris and the secrets of her father, that kind of piqued my attention and about Rhaegar too. In A Dance with Dragons, we do get Barrison revealing certain things about Eris Targaryen. I remember in Danny's seventh or eighth chapter, I think it's her seventh chapter in Dance with Dragons, where she's writing the palaquin to her marriage with his Loric. Barrison sort of drops hints that Eris II was uh, not a great guy with Joanna Lannister, potentially, uh, which is, of course, is being filtered through Barrison Selmy, who's a very... Um, uh, very much of a square, so we don't. Sh- we're not entirely sure whether things with between Joanna and Eris the Second were consensual or not, or whether it was actually him uh, being much more sexually salty than uh, than what that the way that Barrison tells it. Matters coming in Starfall. That's interesting. I I do feel like that is something that George probably abandoned with the five year gap, because I don't see the the storyline of Daenerys Targaryen culminating in Starfall. I, I see it actually culminating in King's Landing. Now, maybe in a five-year gap situation where you have, you know, your our, our favorite character, our favorite minor character, maybe not our favorite minor character, but Ned Dane, our somewhat favorite minor character that comes up in A Storm of Swords, him being five years old at that point, showing up at Starfall, and Daenerys Targaryen showing up at Starfall too, maybe finding out about Jon Snow. That would all be really interesting things going on, but I don't think that's what we're going to be seeing in the story it come the winds of winter that Daenerys is going to land in Starfall. I think she's going to land at Dragonstone. She's going to fight against Aegon throughout the southern part of Westeros. I do wonder if Danny will fly over the Red Mountains of Dorne, which is something that is sort of foreshadowed in that um, Savas game between uh, Marcella, Marcella and Tristane, where they're they're playing and and uh, one of the two, I can't remember which one, flies their dragons over the Red Mountains of Dorne and is able to destroy the uh, the elephants, which seemingly foreshadows what Daenerys is going to do with the uh, with the Golden Company, who will not probably go out as big of chumps as they did in season eight, but will still go out like chumps all the same. So those are like some very basic thoughts. But Emmett, I know that you have a lot of thoughts about this, too, because this involves things like Dorne and Starfall and the Danes and things that you are much more interested in than I am in this story. True, although I think neither of us hold a candle in terms of Dane interest to Chloe, a.k.a. Liza Narber from Girls Gone Canon. She's definitely the queen of all Dane matters in the fandom. So if you haven't checked out her writings on Ashara, you definitely should. <laughs> yes. That aside, yeah, I mean, the way it's phrased that she's going to learn secrets and other matters that will culminate at Starfall, maybe I'm parsing it too much, but that doesn't necessarily sound like she's going to be at Starfall, but just the, the things she will learn about it are going to culminate there. So that makes me think... Hmm, Rhaegar, Starfall, maybe this has something to do with R plus L equals J. And Danny was supposed to learn some significant information in that regard from Barristan and maybe put the pieces together later, but then George has changed how he was going to handle R plus L equals J or just pushed it off into the distance, so that didn't become a huge part of it. I think it's it's interesting to consider the yeah, the Iron Men of the Isles attacking the Dreadfort. Yeah, that might have been what Asha's storyline was originally going to be in the books, and then you can see George also hinting at a, a 
a storyline where Stannis attacked the Dread Four because that's a plan of his at one point before John changes his mind. So maybe at one point George just combined these storylines and said, okay, you know what? I'm sending Stannis to Winterfell, actually, so I need a POV on that. So I'm just going to fold Asha into that. And that might have been what happened. And you have the, the remaining Northern Lords warring endlessly with each other was kind of filtered into that through the, through the Davos storyline in White Harbor. And through, again, Asha's eyes on the clans. So I think you can see all, like, versions of all these storylines ex- existing in a, like, mutated form in the can- canonical series. But George has changed the POVs dramatically and changed the direction. Like the like in Starfall, as we and many others have mentioned before, it seems like the Dark Star hunt there and maybe Ario Hoda as a POV at all were invented <laughs> solely because George needs to get this Starfall information out of the way. And as the story has changed, he doesn't have a convenient POV to do it, so we had to invent one. It is definitely fascinating to see, you know, not only just all the alternate pathways George has considered throughout writing this series. We've talked a lot about that in regards to book one as we've been going week by week through it. But it's especially interesting to me in terms of Feast and Dance because of how long he spent on those two books. And just how many other, not just different storylines, but whole different versions of those two (laughs) books he had in his mind. Like he's talking about with the Mirror and he's not in regard to Dance. Feast was just a completely different book in its original conception. So... Those matters are especially of interest to me. So I'm always glad we have a, a sharp-eyed, smart people like Javi checking that stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good to have like kind of that meta historical thing going on for the meta knowledge about A Song of Ice and Fire and how George writes the books. That's something that's very interesting to to me uh, over the years that I found to be a, a, a particular fascination, especially how Feast and Dance are written. So thank you, Javi M., for the question. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Javi is, if you guys are, are, are Spanish speakers, uh, he has a great podcast called, I'm going to butcher the Spanish here, but it's called Hielgo El Fuego, which is... Um, I, I guess I'm doing it right. I'm sure that ha- Javi, if, he, if I if, and our Spanish listeners, if I'm doing it wrong and I'm fucking it up, just know that I'm a white guy from Middle America, so I don't know how to speak Spanish. You know, I took Latin in high school. That's the language that Latin and Greek. And- <laughs> of course you did. Of course you did. I took French, so I shouldn't be talking, which is also an of course you did moment. Of course, neither, you did. neither of us took the much more geographically culturally relevant language. Absolutely. Of course not. No, we, we couldn't. We're, we're just like not very practical men ultimately <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. So thank you, Javier, for the question. Check out his podcast. Even if you're not a Spanish speaker, if you want to learn some of the Spanish language, it's a great way of doing that. And here is a synopsis for Game of Thrones, Brand 7. Brand Stark watches a bunch of teenagers inducted into basic combat training under Drill Sergeant Roger Cassell's tender tender care. The boys swing wooden swords, curse and grunt as they smack each other with the aforementioned wooden swords and D.I. Cassell stomp steps through the lines yelling no at the boys over and over and over again. They don't fight very well, Brand says dubiously. They don't indeed, Mr. Lewin agrees, distracted. And why is Lewin distracted? Well, you see, he has a mirror's telescope in hand and he's looking at a large red comet in the sky. Yes, that red comet. Lewin attempts to reassure Bran that if the boys have enough time, they might be crept into soldiers, but Bran is skeptical and also a little resentful. If he could walk, he'd be able to take them all on. Besides, Bran had beaten Prince Tommen when they were playing at swords back when the royal family visited Winterfell. Bran then wonders whether Lewin could teach Bran how to use a poleaxe, why he'd wield his poleaxe atop Hodor, who'd be his legs. They'd be a knight together, but Lewin thinks this unlikely. Bran, when a man fights, his arms and legs and thoughts must be as one. Down in the castle yard, Roderick yells to the boys to stop fighting like goddamn geese. Instead, parry, block. When one of the boys laughs, Roderick tells him that he fights like a hedgehog. Bran then tells Lewin that Old Nan once told him the story about a knight who couldn't see. This knight apparently wielded Donatello's bow staff, except his staff had blades at both ends. Simeon's star eyes, Lewin said as he marked numbers in a book. 
When he lost his eyes, he put stars, sapphires in the empty sockets, or so the singers claim. Lewin says that this is only a story and that all stories from the Age of Heroes are just that. Fucking stories, bro. And Bran, you're going to need to put these dreams aside. They're only going to break your heart. At the mention of dreams, Bran tells Lewin about an interesting dream he had had the night prior. I dreamed about the crow last night, the one with three eyes. He flew into my bedchamber and told me to come with him. So I did. We went down to the crypts. Father was there, and we talked. He was sad. A distracted Lewin asks Bran why Ned was sad. Well, Bran says it has something to do with John. The dream had fucked Bran up a bit, even more than his normal three-eyed crow dreams had. And it had seemingly fucked Hodor up too. See, Hodor wouldn't even go down to the crypts, even after Bran had told him to take him down, and even after Bran had gotten so angry that he wanted to swat Hodor's head. But Bran hadn't. Good. Hoder is a man, not a mule to be beaten, Lewin says. Bran continues with more dream talk. He flew down to look for his dad in the crypts. Maester Lewin finally starts giving Bran the attention he deserves. He tells Bran that Ned will one day be buried there, yes, but that won't be for a long, long time. Hmm. Ned's a prisoner down in King's Landing, after all. He's going to be perfectly safe and fine in the tender Lannister care. He will not be down in the crypts. He was there last night, Bran says. I talked to him. Lewin sighs and asks Bran if the boy wants to go down and take a look for himself, but Bran can't. Hoda won't carry him down, but Lewin has a solution. Lewin calls Osha, the wildling up, and she states that she ain't scared of no haunted holes. Bran calls for summer and team hashtag no fear is off for the crypts. Osha carries Bran across the wonderful yard and Bran tries not to get his feelings hurt over the fact that he's being carried like a little baby in Osha's arms. As for the wildling woman, she had been formerly been put in full chains, but now she only has the heavy iron shackles around her ankles, but even they really didn't affect her long strides. As they move down to the crypts, Bran realizes it's been a while since he's been down in the crypts himself. He used to play down there with Rob, John, and his sisters, but they weren't here anymore, and Bran wishes that they were. Without them, the place feels dark and scary. They progress into the crypts themselves, and the crypt statues come into view. They were the kings of winter. Ah, well, to Osha, winter ain't got no king. Maester Lun puts in that they were kings of the north in actuality. Osha lifts the torch and shows these kings as they appeared, bearded or clean-shaven, but always with iron long swords across their laps. They progress into the cave-like vault, and Bran remembers that John told him that there were sublevels where the oldest Stark kings were buried. Lewin tells Bran to remember his history and give Osha, and the reader for that matter, the names of the Stark kings and a little backstory. So Bran goes through each of the kings that he sees. First, there is John Stark, who drove out raiders in the east. Second, Rickard Stark, who took the neck, not the same Rickard Stark as his grandfather. Theon Stark, the hungry wolf, who was always at war. Brandon the shipwright, who loved ships and was lost at sea. His tomb is empty. Brandon the Burner, his son, who burned all of his father's ships in grief. Roderick Stark, who won Bear Isle in a wrestling match, in a wrestling match. Torrin Stark, the last king of the north, who knelt to get Aegon the Conqueror. Kragen Stark of Fire and Blood, Volume 1 fame, who fought Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight and was the finest swordsman that Prince Aemon had ever fought against. They get to the end and Bran sees Lord Rickard Stark, who was, quote, beheaded, not actually, by Aerys II. Lyanna Stark's crypt is there too, alongside of Bran Stark. Now, these two shouldn't have necessarily had statues, but Ned had insisted that both of his siblings be buried in the crypts of Winterfell. Ned had loved them deeply. Osha thinks that Lyanna looks pretty, and Bran has something to say on that. Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died, and he never got her back at all. 
sad and false tale. And ah, now I start to see why Bran said that Robert's Rebellion was based on a lie in season seven. Guess the writers reread this chapter before writing that particularly objective line of dialogue, huh? Anyways, the party comes up to the holes where Eddard will be buried someday, and Lewin asks if this was where he saw his dad. It was. Bran feels uneasy, and maybe he hears a noise. Was there someone there? Lewin steps forward, torch in hand, to give the boys a good learn about the scientific nature of dreams when the darkness springs out at him, snarling. Bran sees green eyes, black fur, and the flash of teeth as Lewin goes hurtling towards the ground. Then Bran sees it's a direwolf, and Bran yells, Subber! Bran's direwolf goes into motion, slamming it to Shaggy Dog. They fight and roll around the ground while Lewin grabs his torn and bloody arm. Osha puts Bran against his grandfather Rickard's crypt statue, and out of the shadows comes Azor High Reborn, a.k.a. Rickon Stark. You let my father be, Rickon warned Lewin. You let him be. Rickon, Bran says softly. Father's not here. Yes, he is. I saw him. Tears glistened on Rickon's face. I saw him last night. And where did Rickon see Ned? Why, in his dreams. Same as Bran. And Ned had told Rickon that he was coming home, just like he had also promised to Bran. Bran looks over to Lewin and sees the maester's Richard Dawkins' smug expression evaporate into uncertainty. Despite the pain, Lewin asks for the torch. The maester yells at Rickon that Shagadog needs to be chained up, but Rickon's all like, you can't tell me what to do, science man. Bran asks if Rickon wants to come with him out of the crypts, but Rickon likes it here in the darkness. Besides, he's waiting for Ned. Bran then says that they can all wait for Ned together in Lewin's chambers, but Lewin ain't about having the direwolves in his chambers. Shagadog needs to be chained or... Or killed, Bran thinks. But what he said was, he was not made for chains. We will wait in your tower, all of us. Lewin tries to protest again, but Osha is there to remind everyone that Bran is the one who actually gives the orders around here. Up in the tower, Osha bandages Lewin and everything is a cluttered mess with scientific instruments and charts about. Maester Degrasse Lewin has taken a huge liking to tracking this particular comet's trail across the red sky, seemingly. Oh, and there's a lot of shit. Raven shit, specifically. The birds quark about everyone in the brookery, and Lewin quarks below. I agree that it is odd that you boys dreamed the same dream, yet when you stop to consider, it's only natural. You miss your lord father, and you know that he is a captive. Fear can fever a man's mind and give him queer thoughts. Rickon is too young to comprehend. Rickon interrupts to let Lewin know that he ain't no baby. He's four, which sounds exactly like my daughter, two-year-old daughter. She's not a baby anymore. She's a big girl at the age of two. Lewin goes on as Osha puts a burning ointment onto his arm to admonish Bran about Bran about how Bran should know better, that dreams are only dreams, but Osha disagrees. Some are, some aren't. The children of the forest could tell you a thing or two about dreaming. Maester Christopher Hitchens Lewin flexes his citadel-trained brain <laughs> muscles and tells everyone that the children only live in dreams. They're extinct. But Bran counters that the children of the forest knew the songs of the trees and do and sing all sorts of amazing things. Lewin picks up his copy of the children of the forest delusion and talks about, oh, yeah, sure, kid. They did it with magic. Sure. Boy, I sure wish I could have some magic now to heal my arm. But we have to rely on very sciencey science to heal wounds or tell Shaggy Dog not to bite me. Take a lesson, Bran. The man who trusts in spells is dueling with a glass sword, as the children did. Lewin then pulls out a glass jar full of blackened arrowheads. There are dragon glass, the weapons of the children of the forest, forged in the fire of the gods far below the earth. The children of the forest hunted with these arrowheads thousands of years ago, but they didn't do any metalwork. Instead, they carried blades of obsidian. And still do, Osha says, putting a cloth over Lewin's wound. 
Brandon asks if he can keep one, and Lewin says, sure, why not? Rickon wants four arrowheads because he's four and because that's also very adorable. Lewin advises the boys that the arrowheads are sharp and to be careful not to cut themselves. And Bran asks after the children. Lewin asks what he wants to know and Bran says everything. So we then get some excellent world building. The children of the forest were erased from the Dawn Age before the first men, Andals or Targaryens arrived. They lived in the woods and worshipped the trees. They were dark, beautiful, little people. But they were fast and graceful, too. They had something resembling a gender egalitarian viewpoint as male and female children hunted together with werewolf bows. Their wise men were called green seers, and they carved faces into the trees. But things changed 12,000 years ago. The first men crossed from Essos into Westeros along the then-united arm of Dorne. The first men had horses, bronze swords, and leathern shields. So the children were terrified of these new arrivals, and the first men were likewise terrified by the faces in the trees. And then it got worse when the first men started to cut down those trees with the faces on them to make their towns and hold fast. The children went to war with the first men. The children called down a dark magic to break the arm of Dorne, and the land ran red with the blood of the first men and the children. But the children of the forest were losing the war. Finally, the children and the first men put their war aside and met together to hammer out a peace treaty at a place called the God's Eye. They forged the pact. The first men were given the coastlands, the high plains and the bright meadows, the mountains and bogs. But the deep woods were to remain forever the children's. And no more werewolves would be, were to be put to the axe anywhere in the realm. So the gods might bear witness to the signing. Every tree on the island was given a face. And afterward, the sacred order of the Green Men was formed to keep watch over the Isle of Faces. The pact started 4,000 years of friendship between the First Men and the Children of the Forest, and at some point, the First Men had even put aside their religion for the faith of the old gods. Thus began the Age of Heroes. Now, that is how you do backstory, Lewin and George R. R. Martin. Love it. Bran says the children are all gone, but Osha puts in that, yeah, they're gone around here, but it's different north of the Wall. Maester Sam Harris Lewin sighs and says that Osha should be back in chains by all rights and that Osha shouldn't be telling them that the children of the forest are real. They are dead and we killed them. Is Lewin the Nishi of A Song of Ice and Fire? I'm just asking the real questions here. But Bran wants to know what happened next in the story. Where did the children of the forest go? Well, everything was fine until those goddamned Andals crossed into Westeros. The Andals fought hundreds of years worth of wars in Westeros, bringing a violent conception of the faith of the Seven with them as they went to work. And at long last, six of the seven kingdoms in the south were absorbed into a patchwork of Andal kingdoms south of the neck. In the north, though, things were different. The Starks and the Northmen threw back every invasion. But down south, the Andals cut down the werewoods and burned them, telling everyone that they had pranced the old gods in fear of their new gods. So the children had to flee. And they went north. Summer began to howl. Lewin breaks off from his story. Shaggy Dog joins in the howling. Fear grips Bran. It's coming, he whispered with the certainty of despair. He had known it since last night, he realized, since the crow had led him down into the crypts to say farewell. He had known it, but he had not believed. He had wanted Maester Lewin to be right. The crow, Bran thought. The three-eyed crow. The howling stops, and a raven lands in the windowsill. Rickon cries, letting the arrowheads fall to the ground. Bran pulls his brother to him and hugs him, and Lewin looks at the bird as if, and I love this, it were a scorpion with feathers. Lewin heads over to the bird to see that it's injured. The maester thinks that it was a hawk or owl who attacked the bird. He grabs the piece of paper from his leg. Bran shivers and asks, What is it? You know what it is, boy, Osha said, not unkindly. Maester Lewin looks up at everyone numbly, tears in his bright gray eyes. My lords, he said, and a voice gone hoarse and shrunken. We, we shall need to find a stone carver who knew his likeness well. 
And that is a Game of Thrones brand seven, our final brand chapter in a Game of Thrones. You know, it's it's kind of amazing to me that we're here now closing out chapter point of views from various characters. You know, we had Ned's final chapter a few weeks ago, Arya's final chapter last week, which she did our live cast on, which was great. Sansa's will be next week, but Bran's final chapter kind of hit me, you know, in writing the synopsis. Bran is the genesis for George's writing of a Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire as we talked all the way back in February 2018. But now we're saying goodbye to our baby boy, T- today at least for a time. The-, the nice thing is we don't have to really wait too long because, you know, Bran, I think it's his fourth chapter in A Clash of King is Bran's first chapter, which is which is nice. But, you know, it's it's great. Brands, we have Bran's Marvelous A Clash of Kings are coming up, but it's really kind of hitting me that we're almost done at Game of Thrones. And man, I- I'm going to have a lot of stuff to say about a Game of Thrones when we come to our end of the book patron episode. But it's just hitting me, Emmett. I mean, it, it just is. But, you know... Regardless of me blubbering about how much I'm feeling like these emotions about coming to the end of a Game of Thrones, Emmett, what did you think about this chapter? Well, you're going to be the emotional one and I'm going to be the sour detached one for <laughs> once, Jeff. We'll buck those stereotypes. We're just coming off Ned's execution and before that was Mary Mazder's blood magic and before that were the first big battles. And I would be lying if I said I thought this chapter was on par with those. Brand 7 is probably my least favorite chapter of this final third or so of A Game of Thrones, which as we've been covering is just an embarrassment of riches. When last we checked in with Bran, I said that while he has my favorite chapters of any POV character in the first half of the book, his story rapidly peters out in the second half. And this chapter is where it really becomes clear that most of this stuff isn't going to pay off for a while. Next week we're doing Sansa 6, as you said, which is is such a brilliant capper for her story in book one and brings all the themes and ideas we've been talking about with her character together. Brand 7, by contrast, doesn't really feel like it's a conclusive end to a coherent story in this book. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's correct. I mean, I actually really like this chapter. I mean, I really enjoyed reading through it. But, you know, you do have to wonder whether this was another place where George had elements of what became Bran's class chapters already written. But when he decided to split material for A Game of Thrones into A Clash of Kings, he rewrote this chapter to be the final Bran chapter for A Game of Thrones. Still, I mean, like I said, I like this chapter a lot. I mean, I just feel like just in terms of its placement, right? I think we've been through a whirlwind of battles, the Whispering Wood, the Green Fork. We've had magic shadow demons dancing in Mary Mazdor's tents. And then we've had Ned Stark being executed in front of the gathering masses at Baylor's Sept. So to me, it feels like the reason why George put this brand chapter here is that it kind of works as kind of quiet, reflective melancholy to the seismic plot heavy chapters that preceded it. And and I like that. I I like how the mood kind of changes for this chapter. So you feel you start to you, you allow yourself not to rest necessarily, but you've just been through so much shit in terms of like what Martin is throwing at us plot wise, that now we finally get a quiet character moment. And I'm not saying there aren't character moments in the preceding chapters, because there are plenty of them. But for here, this is, I mean, there is a small bit of action with Shaggy Dog and stuff like that, but it's much more about Bran's state of mind and about us as readers coming to accept that Ned Stark is dead, man. Ned's dead, baby. I think that's fair. It's a necessary breather. And as you say, it's it's more a transitional chapter between Bran's chapters in this first book and his arc in the second book, which I think his arc in Clash of Kings is, is much more like a coherent, cohesive story, like beginning, middle, and end. Here's the arc. Here's where the tensions Bran starts out with. Here's how they resolve. Here's how he goes forward. And a lot of that is introduced in this chapter. The sense of Bran as our POV on the Stark home front, as as people in the Winterfell area try to get their shit together as Rob is off fighting the war. That struggle between the that political grounded side of Bran's story and the more magical flights of fancy that are calling him north. 
We see a character like Osha and in his own way Rickon embody that in this chapter. We're going to see Jojen Reed embody that in the Clash of Kings. And you have Maester Lewin and Sir Roderick on the other side. And I can say nice things about the chapter itself. I mean, there, there's a ton of really important world building at the end of Brand 7. There's some neat, spooky imagery in the crypts. And above all, as you say, there's there's some really important emotional character work done here in both large and small strokes. So we have the chapter opening with Bran as the Stark in Winterfell, as the phrase goes. He's, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell, and right now that's him. And he's attending to his duties as Lord of the Castle. I mean... He's not exactly running things, of course. He's a child. Sir Roderick is back as Castellan. Lewin is the experienced and well-regarded maester. Everyone, both in Winterfell and in Rob's camp, understands that they're the ones actually taking charge of the castle while Rob is gone. But the question of Bran's duty to his people will only become more pressing now that Ned is executed and Rob is soon to be crowned. When we next get to a Bran chapter in A Clash of Kings, he's going to be a prince. And the question of how he handles those duties are, is a really important through line in Book 2. And even here, framing him like that right after Ned's death, right after the, the great unmooring scar of A Game of Thrones, especially as a first-time reader, you're, you're reeling. And now suddenly, you know, there, there's Bran. He has the watch. He's, he's overlooking the, the next generation of people who are going to grow up and fight the wars. And it's, it's establishing Bran as a leader for the future. I mean, he's the king of kings in the endgame in the show. And as we've said before, there's a lot of evidence that su suggests, both in the text and in George's comments, that that's Bran's endgame in the books as well. I talked last week, and we were doing a Game of Thrones Arya 5, about there being like this Ned Stark-shaped hole that you can feel emotionally, palpably in the series after he dies. And having this chapter right after this, that chapter kind of frames Bran as the person who's filling that hole. We, we've talked before about how Ned had to die as the mentor figure, just in terms of like the trope. And, and I love the fact that Bran is being framed as a Prince of Winterfell and not a triumphant sort of, yay, Bran Stark is the Prince of Winterfell because Rob has risen up to take on the Lannisters. Instead, it's being framed as melancholy, as tragic, as sad. And I think it's a really good touch on George's part that we have that framing device being used here, that it's all done in kind of this very stark, sad con contrast. And I think it's good. It's it's good to have that because, you know, when, when you look at things like uh, I'm thinking about – um. In A Storm of Swords, well, not A Storm of Swords, more like season four of, of Game of Thrones, a TV show, how Tommen's crowning was this kind of glorious moment. and But it's it, it's despite the fact that his brother has just fucking died in the, in the story, right? But the Lassers do these the optics of it being this kind of glorious thing with this kind of swelling music. But when Bran finds out about Ned's death in season one, they opt for the Stark theme, which is a very kind of sad, melancholy theme. It's a wonderful... Uh, Wonderful music motif that the Ramin Jawadi uses over and over again, goes back to over and over again in the story, and helps to kind of set the the tone and the mood for this chapter. But I think like the other cool thing though about Bran becoming a prince is how how Bran becoming a prince and how he's witnessing this new crop the of younglings coming up and uh, who are all of course going to die when Theon Greyjoy takes Winterfell in the next book. <laughs> Most of them are going to die anyways. Is is how like we have this idea that these cow Callow youths are being left behind. It's you know it's a reminder that George wanted Bran to be five years older than the people that are in this story by the end game. And you know it's interesting. I have to go into like the meta side because it's like I said in the question for Javier, I'm like I enjoy that a lot. But the common perception is that George decided on a five year gap to kind of age his characters up, and Bran in particular, as he's often said, is one of his hardest characters characters to write because he's so young. He's his youngest point of view character. But originally, the idea wasn't that there would be a five-year gap in the story. 
the characters were supposed to age organically. You know, George talked about this back in 2013. I won't read the whole quote, but essentially he's talking about how there's supposed to be a passage of time that was supposed to occur, like one chapter would occur at one time, and then six months later, the second chapter would occur, and then three months later, and so on and so forth. But what he ended up finding was that plot events were happening a lot more slowly and more organically than it happened. And so by the time, you know, you get to... That, but get to the end of a storm of swords, Brandon's like a year older and Rob is 15 years old and John is 15 years old. So the five-year gap was a solution to how plot events moved at a slower pace than they should have in George's original conception. But the five-year gap brought its own set of problems, which we've talked about in previous Patriot episodes and other episodes here on the show. But, you know, George ended up giving up the five-year gap too, as is famously known in 2001, and declared in 2005, if a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, then so be it. Which um, is very interesting now that we have season eight in the can. Um, we can get back to that at a later point. So that's just kind of a longer side of it. I just love talking about the five-year gap. But let, let's talk about more in this, this context about this chapter, about Brand's youth in the context of this chapter. So, so this follows up what I was arguing back in Brand six, that the subversion is leaving us behind. A chapter's end with Brandon Hodor rather than riding off to do gallant deeds with Rob the Young Wolf. You know, it's, it's really cool, like we said at the end of that chapter, how you know, instead of like the camera following Rob off to war, it lingers with Bran there as he's left behind and he has only the old men, the youths, the women, Hodor and Maester Lewin and old man, of course, who are all there. And it's really a cool message that George is communicating about what is left behind when the men go off to war. Now we see that ramification here with Ned having taken the best men available and Rob taking all the, quote, likely lads. Only the bottom of the barrel are left in the defense of the home front. You think that's going to have consequences for a clash of kings when a certain ironborn prince decides that he needs to prove himself to his father Balon to take Winterfell? You think? Yeah, it's going to have some major consequences there. And of course, you know, given the endpoint for Brandon's from season eight, which of course Em and I both think is going to be the likely endpoint for the books with a much different uh, set of plot and character sequences that will likely set the foundation for the event of Bran becoming the King of Kings, as you put out, put so nicely. You know, I, I like the idea of that's the leftovers of the world that have to put the world back together after everyone is just kind of gone off and died in either the War of the Five Kings or died with Ned down in King's Landing. And, you know, it's cool that we have Bran as the king. He is the leftover king. But, you know, it, he's more than just a leftover king. He's not just the guy that you're like, oh, I guess we got to settle on him. Uh, and we will talk about that a bit more towards the end of this episode. But I think it's a really cool that the leftovers are the ones who are going to reestablish the order and reestablish the world in Westeros. Yeah, he's Bran the Rebuilder. He's going to come up with a, a different world out of the, the broken remnants of the old one, kind of mirroring what George is trying to do with the genre. And I think you make a great point that this... The way this chapter opens is kind of a microcosm of how Endgame is going to look, is, is Bran overlooking the remnants, the next generation, who's, who's going to try to put everything back together. The bittersweet side of that, as we see over and over with the characters in the younger generation, is even as they're moving forward, it's always coming with a cost. It's always coming with only death may pay for life. It's the expense of the old world or expense of a new world that might have been. Like Danny always has these visions of these Targaryen men who, in a cosmic sense, had to die to make way for her, in the same way that Ned had to die to make way for, way for his kids. She sees these visions of, of Rhaegar, the, quote, last dragon, dying, and Eris, who thought he was going to become the ultimate dragon, him dying, and even even Rhaegar. She has visions of the man he could have been, and now he's dying, and all, all that's left is her. There's empowering parts to that, but also really sad parts of that, and I think Bran is feeling both of those here for sure, especially since he's feeling this this identity conflict, which is going to become uh, so central to his story going forward, between him being uh, the Stark in Winterfell, 
and him being the winged wolf, being, you know, the prince Rob's heir left behind to guard the home front versus being the next three-eyed crow and the next kind of the shaman character who's going to take on Blood Raven's mantle. Now that the end point in the show and what might be in the book suggests he's eventually going to synthesize those two, which is great because that, that appears to be the goal. But right now, or this early on in the story, they're just, they're fighting away at each other in <laughs> his head, like, like the Summer and Shaggy Dog out in the crypts, just snarling at each other. So you have Bran trying to stay focused as Lewin and Roderick are on the, the grounded work of guarding Winterfell, but his thoughts keep straying to his to his magical side and to his family, and the two are connected as we see at chapter's end. You have the direwolves howling in grief, not only for Ned, as the, the word of Ned's death arrives, but also for the children of the forest, because Lewin has just reached that point in his story where the children fled north from the Andals. So you can see the direwolves, who of course are connected to the old gods and the children of the forest may have been sent by blood raven via their dead mom and now they're there so they're in mourning for both ned and the children both of whom were killed off by southern kings you know the children were wiped out by those beautiful golden-haired andal kings just like ned was by joffrey <laughs> so you have you have again these conflicting identities these these differing sides of the stark in winterfell that it's are going to become very pronounced in brand's story in a clash of kings and appropriately enough, the side of, of magical family connections is associated with dreams. And that's appropriate because it links to Bran's fever dream earlier in the book, in his third chapter. It links to Ned's fever dream of the, of the Tower of Joy, all the Starkling's various wolf dreams, John's crypt dreams, Bran's later dream of the Red Wedding and a Storm of Swords that he alludes to. We were comparing the Red Wedding to Ned's execution in our episode on Arya 5, and Bran has this intense dream sense of them both. It's a family motif, as with the Targaryens and their dragon dreams. And it, it fits in kind of a larger, both kind of literary and true-to-life traditions, where dreams are where you work out subconscious struggles, things that your your waking brain can't really deal with. Grief and trauma, secrets, for, for in Ned's case, identity conflicts, things that should not be but are. This is where you work them out, and this is where Bran has worked this out. And that also fits because... You have this constant sense in the series of, of the night is where you have to become one wolf pack against your enemies, against the others especially. Night gathers and now my watch begins. The night was his to rule, as old man told Bran about Night's King. Night is when things get real. Night is when you're no longer a summer child, but you got to man up and learn your responsibilities. And that's a domain Bran has to enter and has to know to, in order to save the world. Never fear the darkness, Bran. The darkness will make you strong, <laughs> as Blood Raven tells him. I think... Some people seize on that line as evidence that Blood Raven is actually in charge of the others, and he's the ultimate antagonist <laughs> and enemy of the series. And I've I've never had much patience for those theories, and for a variety of reasons. But one of them is I think that it's supposed to be this more kind of insidious thing of of walking into the darkness in order to find the light. And how far will Bran go into into that edge before he becomes that which he's fighting? I don't think Blood Raven is going to turn out to be a, a mustache twirling, cackling villain, but I do think he has a dark aspect to him that, that comes out in dialogue like that. And, and Bran's going to have to deal with as he gets into this, again, these subconscious struggles, bringing out all this, this grief and trauma and backstory and dealing with it in the light. I think it's a great point because we can look at Bloodraven as an unvarnished villain, right? As either being controlling the others, which he's not, or pushing Bran on this like evil, evil path. Instead, like in this, the backstory and the history of the world and the, in the world of ice and fire and then the Dunkin' Egg stories, Bloodraven is more of the pragmatic cynic more than anything else willing to utilize underhanded dark ways in order to further the good. Like he is the actual person – like we talk about Tywin Lannister as being the guy who always sets himself up to be the ends justify the means when he's in fact not that way. Bloodraven is actually more of that guy than anything else, although there is a bit – of uh, ambiguity that I would love to explore more in future Duncan Ake stories, which will never get published, of course. But I, I am curious, Emmett, there is a 
interesting thing about Brand's dream here, and and I'm curious what Bloodraven is communicating here, because Brand's dream is about Ned Stark, his father being in the crypts of Winterfell. So what is Bloodraven trying to do here with Brand and showing him his dad at this this juncture of the story? Now, obviously, Ned's dead, and that's that the Raven is coming up to to feed Brand that information. But I am curious, like what Bloodraven's role is with Brand specifically in showing him Ned's ghost. It's an interesting question. It's interesting to come back to these early Three-Eyed Crow dreams when we know that the Three-Eyed Crow is not some just vague, omniscient force, but a very specific person who always acts for very specific reasons. So Bloodraven is is not just showing Bran this to get the idea that Ned is dead across, because that's going to show up via another bird at the end of the same chapter anyway, when, when the Darkwing's dark words arrive of Ned's death. So... I think what we have here is something to do with the information that, that Ned has that Bloodraven might be trying to communicate. So you have Bloodraven showing up in Bran's dream with Ned's ghost? I'm, <laughs> I say with the question mark? Or maybe it's a projection of Ned by Bloodraven? Or maybe it's an expression of some sort of like lingering, undying slash green seer style hive mind among the Stark dead that just all the magical kind of energy in their in their veins connected with the the central location of the crypts allows the stark dead to communicate with the living to some extent maybe this is flashing through ned's heads in his ned's head in his final moments i mean we don't have ned's pov unlike the show in ned's final moments maybe blood raven is flashing into ned's head and giving them this little connection with bran in those final moments before ned's actually executed i mean of course that gets more and more tinfoil as i went but <laughs> i do think there uh, ned actually has to be involved at some level here because he's talking he, bran says he was sad about something to do with john and there's no reason bran would just project that on his own even if he just was somehow picking up astrally that ned is dead he wouldn't assume that Ned is being sad about John. So that that's a real bit of information that has to be communicated by someone. So whether it's it's Ned or Bloodraven directly, it does seem like Bloodraven is is directly tapping into Ned's psyche to to make this connection and Ned is focused on John because of course he is. That's <laughs> his unfinished business in ghost terminology. That's the, the the one thing he wanted to live to do back when he was waiting in death swings in the black cells. He wanted to get the John. He wanted John to know the truth regardless of whether or not he was breaking his promise to Lyanna. There's the, the quote from Ned's final chapters down in the Black Cells. The thought of John filled Ned with a sense of shame, a sorrow too deep for words. If only he could see the boy again, sit and talk with him. Like, this is kind of the moment Bran is getting access to, right? There is that emotion from Ned. And one thread running through Ned's story, as we've talked about before, is a reckoning with how Robert's Rebellion destroyed even its survivors, that they're all just living with this trauma and loss and grief that they can't get past. And I get the sense that whether or not it would be breaking his promise to Leon, and Ned wants to unburden himself. He wants to be done with that secret and pass the world on to the next generation, as we were saying, to see what they make of the wreck the previous generation has made <laughs> of things. And he was silenced before he could get the chance, just like he silenced Garrod from getting the word out about the White Walkers. And I think it makes sense to link both Bran and the Crips with the unspoken promise here from George that John will still learn the truth despite not, Ned not being able to tell him that he will find out that R plus L equals J. And uh, it, it might involve both Bran and the Crips. I don't know. Do you think that's a, a fair assumption that both Bran and the Crips are going to be involved in, in that discovery? I, I love that so much, man. I, I, I've often thought that Bran will be the first one to learn about R plus L, R plus L equals J and the story itself before John learns about it, and that he would reveal the truth to John. And we did see something along those lines with Bran and Samwell interacting in order to reveal the truth to John in season eight of Game of Thrones. So I, I think it's a that's a great theory and a great idea. I would love I think I would love more than anything else when we get to the winds of winter that we have like a I mean, it's never gonna happen, but we have like 
eight brand chapters before we have Hodor's hold the door and Bloodraven dying and stuff like that at the hands of the others, most likely in the White Walkers, to have Bran learning about the history and having that kind of gradual slow burn reveal of being like, okay, so I'm learning more about the history of the Starks, the first men, the children of the forest, the Stark Kings, the Ando invasions, the creation of the others, Ned Stark, Ned Stark in front of the heart tree praying. We get a, we get a version of that Bran's third chapter where Ned asks the, uh, the old gods that, that they, that they in quotation marks would grow up to be, grow up like brothers, which many people, and I believe correctly have theorized that to mean Rob and John. So growing up as brothers means that they're not actually half brothers, which of course is 100% true. So I, I think it's a great idea that Bran would be the conveyor of the information to John about his identity. And I love that astral connection between Ned and Bran. I think it would be beautiful and wonderful if Ned could talk with Bran in The Winds of Winter and communicate directly to him in some fashion about what is the thought that is filling Ned with such shame that he experiences right before he's executed. I think that would be wonderful. And I think like we get kind of, you know, I, I love this idea of this kind of threefold reveal strategy that Martin has where you have like a ambiguous clue, a more grounded clue, and then finally the great reveal here. So I think like having, you know, the more ambiguous clue here about John, about Ned being sad about something over John to Bran, Bran finding out about, you know, let them grow up as brothers in a dance of dragons. And then, and then Ned specifically telling Bran that John is actually not his son. That he's actually the son of his sister, Lyanna, and uh, the uh, the Doom Prince, Rhaegar. I think that would be really cool. But I don't know if, the, if George is going to go down that path where it will be that explicit. But I do think it, that Bran will learn about John's parentage first before anyone else. Even if he doesn't give us those eight Bran chapters, which I would love. I love Bran's <laughs> chapters in dance so much. My only complaint is that there aren't more of them. But I think you can definitely see him building in the connections between Bran and R plus L equals J, like you have the whole Night of the Laughing Tree story told in a, in a Bran chapter in Storm of Swords. And that is filtered through Bran's age, as it is here. And as you say, George has talked about how he finds it really difficult to write Bran, especially given his age. So this is probably an unpopular opinion on my part, but I actually think he does a good job of writing Bran as his age. I actually think he does a better job of that than he does writing Arya and Sansa as their ages. In part, uh, it's just personal taste. I really like the contrast of, of the youngest, most innocent POV just getting direct access to world-shaking powers. Like, even <laughs> Danny can only translate that stuff through her pets, and Bran can actually play with the fire of the gods. And the fact that he's doing that while he's like seven and eight, for me, that adds to, not the tracks from, the horror tone in Bran's story that takes over in latest Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, my, my favorite parts of his story, unsurprisingly. <laughs> I also just think George nailed the balance between giving the adult audience just enough information to form an incomplete picture, which will keep us reading, and showing us the even less complete picture in Bran's head as a kid. <laughs> and I think that makes for an, an interesting dynamic. Like, again, the Night of the Laughing Tree story is probably the best example. Just pluck that in isolation away from Bran's POV, and it's already working on like half a dozen different levels of subtext simultaneously. George constructs that story so beautifully to convey R plus L equals JD without ever spelling it out directly. But then you put it in the context of, of Bran, and he's just asking the most innocuous <laughs> Princess Bride questions imaginable throughout the whole thing. Like, oh, well, you know, did they fight very well? And this is what made that story better. And, you know, he's trying to turn it into a, a non-subtextual story in his head, just a perfect, easy uh, fairy tale that snaps right up that he can digest. And Jojen, as Mira is telling the story, even comments on how little Bran knows about this, because, of course, R plus L equals J is a much more loaded subject around Winterfell as opposed to Greywater Watch. And there's, I think there's a real poignancy to that in realizing that Bran is missing the point. 
Uh, that, that may sound silly, but I think there's a real tragedy to realizing, oh, he's, he's just a little too young to get it. And oh, <laughs> oh, if only he could get it, so much would be different. And the same logic is here. Like the, the sadness comes from the truth vanishing in Bran's mind, like tears in the rain. The, the truth is there. R plus L equals J is there in his mind's eye in this chapter. And then it's gone, like dad, and he's too young to know it was ever there. And I, I think that's, that's wonderfully done. But standing as stout counter <laughs> to all this metaphysical nonsense is Maester Lewin. So if we have the, the magical pole in Bran's arc, you know, is embodied by his, his dreams and characters like Osha and Jojen and later meeting Blood Raven and the Children in the Flesh. And then the other pole, you have Maester Lewin, dry-eyed, skeptical rationalist. And he's the audience avatar to a certain degree. Like he's trying to get the poor, bereft wizard kid to focus <laughs> on the, the practical realities of running an important castle in wartime, which... I think is what we all like to think we'd be trying to do in this moment is his focusing on what you can do and trying to get the kid to stay focused. But of course, he's also the anti-old Nan. Old Nan fills Bran with these wonderful stories and Lewin kind of tamps him down. He first mentions dreams here, the constant motif of this chapter, dreams, not in the context of literal dreams, but of Bran's dreaming of being a fabled figure like Simeon Star Eyes. And Lewin is trying to deconstruct those childish fantasies and get Bran to grow up a little. So again, it's those opposing poles in Bran's stories. Some mentors are telling him you have to put these stories aside. Some mentors are telling him, no, you're actually part of the stories. You're the next generation of stories. You have to step it up. And we as the audience members, we know that Lewin is wrong about Bran's dream not meaning anything, that Ned really is dead and that Bran's dreams really do carry weight. And I think, again, I think George fleshes both these sides out he just has more time to flesh them out in the Clash of Kings, and we're just we're just going to get like a kind of a little taste of it here. But I think that that dynamic is really well set up and and compelling, and uh, it it carries real heft once you get down to the crypts. Yeah, it really does. But I, before we get down to the crypts, there is something I wanted to, to bring up, which is that I think it's really done symbolically well through the Red Comet. Because what is Lewin doing for the first third of this story, the first third of this chapter, rather? He's going, he's watching the Red Comet and he's marking it with little pen marks on his little sheet of paper. He's doing kind of the scientific method of being like, oh, well, the, the comet was in this section of the sky at this time. Now it's here. Here's its trajectory. It's probably not going to hit us and end all human life. So I think we could be safe there. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, like when we get to Clash and at the end of a Game of Thrones, we start to see like the, some of the more mystical, magical characters taking a look at the Red Comet. And we will talk about this a little bit later on. I'm starting to s s identify different elements, magical, mystical, prophetic, destined roles for, for the Red Comet. Whereas Lewin is very much tied to what does this actually mean physically and scientifically. And it's not to say that Lewin is wrong necessarily to focus on like the realistic, grounded side of things, whether that's the actual rulership of Winterfell and Bran's role during the wartime situation in the North and the Riverlands. But at the same time, he's missing some of the larger picture. And I think that's something that it's not it's that it's not George just saying like science is wrong and bad necessarily, but it is saying that there is something a little bit deeper and more profound that goes beyond the scientific method and the scientific observation and the kind of pragmatic rulership of Winterfell that's important for both the reader and a meta side to understand and important for Bran to understand too, that he has to understand these both sides of, of what's going on in Winterfell and what's going on in the larger outside world, whether it's dreams, whether it's the Red Comet, whether it's Ned's death too. 
neither of the scientific nor magical forces in the series are really being framed as entirely wrong or entirely right in their perspective on the world. In specific situations, there's definitely right and wrong takes. There are times in the series when people viewing things magically is being proven definitively wrong, and times in the series when people are viewing things purely rationally are being proven definitively wrong. But like with a lot of seemingly opposing forces in the series, I think what George is ultimately going for is a synthesis and, you know, trying to bring these two sides together. And you see that in a number of ways. You're talking about the Red Comet and how that's both like, you know, a literal physical object you can make observations about and record, but it's also like unusually big and an unusual color. And it's like, there's a reason everyone's projecting their destinies (laughs) onto this thing because it's really weird and really notable. And you see it even, the other thing Lewin is doing at the beginning of this chapter is he's measuring shadows. Now Hmm. that is a real world, like historical scientific thing that, you know, measuring shadows is how you can measure like, you know, the circumference of the earth because you got the angle of the sun hitting this at a certain way. And it's, that's, that's true to how a lot of great scientific disciplines were, were invented on, on our earth was by taking note of the position of shadows. But when you think about shadows in the Song of Ice and Fire, you think about like Melisandre's shadow babies and the white walkers who are often framed as the white shadows, the white shadows of the wood, these mystical forces. So it's both. And you have to, trying to come to terms with both of them is again a big part of Bran's story about being both the winged wolf and the Stark and Winterfell. And then of course, when you get down to the crypts, that, that, <laughs> that dynamic becomes all the more pressing because this is something that House Stark has always had to deal with. When you call yourself the king of winter, that's both a political phrase that you're saying, I am, you know, Winterfell is where we gather together against the cold and against the the deprivations of winter. You come together in my winter town and my hot spring fed castle and I will keep you safe if you bend the knee to me. But (laughs) king of winter is also a magical term, a claim to be able to to deal with the more metaphysical side that comes with winter, the ice demons and their zombies. So yeah, I love that. That's synthesized between the magic and the and the scientific side. I think that's an awesome way of looking at a song of ice and fire. That both sides are they they have some elements that are wrong and some elements that are right. And finding the balance between the two is the best way to go about it. So yeah, let's let's talk about the crypts a little bit. So it's it's I, I love this scene. Uh, I love the scene because, you know, it's funny. I was, I was doing research on this, trying to get a little more information about some of these Starks that, you know, Bran and Osha, Lewin and Summer are all passing by. But, you know, most of the historical information for a lot of these old timer Starks comes from Bran 7 of A Game of Thrones. Like it's not really expanded upon in the world of ice and fire and fire and blood and in subsequent novels too. I mean, for instance, like Bran and the Shipwright and Bran and the Builder. One sailed ships and the other burned, burned his father's ships. That's the extent of all the historical information available about father and son. And it all comes from this chapter. So it's interesting, right? Because I, I think a lot of people have this idea that George just decided later on in the story that he was going to like fill in all of the historical background detail about A Song of Ice and Fire. But he's left a lot of things ambiguous and left a lot of things kind of in a single line of dialogue as Bran describing things in the crypts to Osha and uh, reciting things that Lewin had taught him. But we do get, you know, small snippets of information from the world of Ice and Fire about the other Starks that he sees down there, sees down in the crypts, like John Stark. Well, he constructed the Wolf's Den, which he talks about. He drove off an invasion by slavers, per per the world of Ice and Fire and per Davos' chapters in A Dance with Dragons. And then we get Rickard Stark. He did take the neck, which is what's something that Bran recites there, but he did so by killing the last Marsh King. And he was known as the, quote, laughing wolf due to his good nature, which, um... That's interesting that he he's killed the, some guy in single combat and was known as like this kind of guy who loved to laugh and had a good nature about himself. And then Theon Stark, who is my my all time favorite historical Stark, he drove back the Andals indeed, but he also made common cause. But he did that by making common cause with House Bolton to drive back the Andals, and he also staked all of the Andals on the on the stone on the on the shores of the Stony Shore, which is really um uh, quite quite metal. 
And he also repelled an invasion by the Ironmen in the West. I mean, the dude was at war for his entire reign. But, you know, the two final historical Stark kings, Torin and Craig and Stark, have a lot of history embedded into the main narrative and then greatly expand upon by both the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood. And for Craig and you can go back and listen to our Patreon, our four-part Patreon episode about Fire and Blood. Uh, but I do love that how the bare bones that George had in mind when he was writing this chapter in the 90s got a, a nice fleshing out by the histories. You know, Craig and Stark and the, and the Hour of the Wolf chapter and the Fire and Blood remain a favorite chapter of mine from that book. You know, as for Torn, we'll have a lot more opportunity to talk about him in future episodes. Suffice to say for this episode, I think it's really fascinating that Bran's final A Dance with, Dra- final a Dance with Dragons chapter, we get an ambiguous vision of not Torn, but his, but his probable bastard half-brother Brandon Snow fashioning arrows to confront Aegon the Conqueror with his sister wives. And, you know, you do wonder whether... And we will probably talk about this back in 2024 about whether Bran's vision foreshadows Jon's role with Daenerys and her dragons in the books potentially as well. Will Jon be the one that actually kills dragons? I don't know. Hope not. Their faces were stern and strong. And some of them had done terrible things, but they were Starks, every one. And Bran knew all their tales. So I, I just love that kind of the, that George is already invested and interested in the backstory and the history there. And I do love the fact that Bran has a fairly realistic view of the Starks. He's not looking at his ancestors as being these wonderful, amazing dudes, not all of them at least, that he's seeing that some of them were terrible and some of them were good, but they were all Starks, everyone, and Bran knew all their tales. What do you think about that? I think that's great. I think it it connects again, not only to his leadership arc, but his overall education and kind of growth as a person that he's coming to understand, oh, these... These people are a part of me, and they're not part of me just because they did great things. So the fact that they're part of me and did terrible things means that I have the capacity to do terrible things, and I have to watch myself and grow as a person. And I think that's an important aspect to all the Stark kids' lives. And Lewin sums up all these Stark kings who are either as fierce as their wolves or as sharp as their swords as hard men for a hard time. Mm. And, you know, this is a hard time. These are lean times for the wolf pack, as, as Bran is returning to the crypt where Ned's story in the book began. And in between those two visits to the crypt, we've seen Ned himself die and so many of his men die and Rob go off to war. It's, it's summer versus autumn. This book began mm-hmm. in summer and then Clash of Kings is going to pick up with the announcement of autumn. So we're getting closer to the long night, getting closer to winter is coming, getting closer to having to grow up. As, as Ned says about Rickon very early on in this book, he has to grow up because winter is coming. And these men in the crypts, they claim to be the kings of winter. They claim to have conquered all those those fears and darkness and death. But Osha is on hand to offer her perspective as an outsider, as a wildling, someone who has lived beyond the wall, to say, no, no mortal man can hold such a position. No Stark is king of winter. And it's hard to say she's wrong for all that you have the kind of the pomposity and history and this amazing setting built up with the Starks. Claiming to be the king of winter didn't save Torin from Egon. You know, having this long-standing tradition didn't save Ricard and Brandon from Eris. Having all this this ice on your side, so to speak, didn't protect them from the fire. At the end of the day, they were just mortal men in the same way that Eris was just a mortal man once you strip away all the dragon imagery and delusions of grandeur from him. And that ties right back into this dynamic between the, the grounded political stuff where you're just an individual trying to do your individual things versus the magical metaphysical side where you're part of this cosmic hive mind history of how House Stark is related to the magical elements. And that gets back to the questions of, of Bran's mentors and how they're pulling him in either direction. You've got Lewin the skeptic, you know, coming down to the crypt and he's carrying with the torch that George describes as a tongue of flame. So he's like Prometheus. He's lighting up the age of men as he walks past all these kings who claim to conquer winter. 
But then you've got these direwolf shadows that as they're fighting after Shaggy attacks Lewin, there's the one moment where George describes the, the shadows as going like 20 feet high on the walls. The torchlight shifts around and those huge shadows, as we we're I was talking about earlier, they represent magic and mysticism. And this world that Lewin and the other maesters thinks they've destroyed and have gotten rid of, Lewin's kind of sad about it and the other maesters are kind of gleeful about it, but they think it's gone. And they're wrong, and Bran's powers are one of the strongest signs of that. And so you have Lewin trying to prove this point to Bran about mysticism versus realism, and he gets proven wrong. Like, he's waving his torch around Ned's seemingly empty tomb, insisting that his enlightenment has vanquished the darkness. (laughs) And then, quote, the darkness sprang at him, snarling. So it's not just emptiness down there, Lewin. It's not just meaningless stories and just, you know rock boxes waiting for us to put our flesh and blood inside them. There's, there's real power down here that he's not reckoning with, that he's not helping Bran reckon with. And so you have the, the darkness getting its vengeance on him, and that darkness is, of course, Shaggy Dog. <laughs> and as we've said before, Rickon and Shaggy Dog really are, they really represent the bottled-up anger of House Stark. All the, the grief and confusion that the family is suffering is being expressed violently by the least powerful and least understanding member of the family, because that's the only vessel he has for it at this point there's that really chilling little moment after the the attack by shaggy dog and his fight with summer is over the uh, quote is rickon patted shaggy dog's muzzle damp with blood i let him loose he doesn't like chains he licked at his fingers and it's like ooh, yeah, rickon's getting a little taste for blood there but also a taste for freedom which he thinks he and shaggy are being denied and he's he's done appealing to those authorities left behind like he didn't have that dream and then like brand go to maester loon and say maester i had this dream can you help explain it to me no he's he's done with all these people he just went straight to the source he just went straight to the, the to the missing tooth that ned stark shaped hole i was talking about earlier that's literally what the crypt is is this hole waiting for ned stark and rickon went there because there at least he gets told that someone is coming home even if they're dead, at least th- that dream gives him a sense that there's going to be some closure. Someone's coming back, which, is, of course, is what Rickon can't deal with, is that, that no one's coming back. And so the climax of the scene isn't just the jump scare of Shaggy attacking Lewin. The climax of the scene is Lewin's expression after real- he realizes that Rickon dreamed the same dream <laughs> as Brandon. And he just looks, George describes, he just looks sucker punched, like his entire worldview is being challenged. That's really like the point of this scene is that you have this this struggle between the magical side and the political side and the magical side just just won a point so to speak oh, that's great I, I love that i think uh the magic did win a point there but i think like it's really cool though that we have the fact that magic is being symbolized by physical things occurring you know we we talked about this back in aria's fourth chapter in, in a game of thrones about the story about how she went down to the crypts with uh with rob and then about there being ghosts there and john was all kind of it was actually john in actuality but what is symbolizing is that there's a real magical power in the crypts of winterfell in the same way that shaggy leaping out in the darkness and snarling at, at lewin shows that yeah, there's something that Lewin isn't quite comprehending, is not willing to see at this point. And and I do love that later on Lewin's like, well, of course you two would have the same dream because um, you know, you're you're both sad for your dad and um you've had the same exact <laughs> dream. But it's it's fine because you know, we could we could we could deduce this scientifically, and you're like, No, you can't, bro. I mean, as as cool as it would be for us as the as the modern intellectual people who have put aside faith and in, 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 in favor of reason. That we were like, yeah, Lewin's right, but George is saying that Lewin's not precisely correct here. In fact, he's wrong in this particular part of the story. There will be later times where he will be proved correct, but here he's wrong, and I think it's a good kind of comeuppance for him that it's not him, his 
torn arm that is that is the end point in the climax of the scene. It's rather him realizing that, yeah, they, they dream the same dream. And that's hard to explain scientifically, despite Lewin's best attempts. I think you made a great point about the magical side still being represented by these these physical actions. You know, the, the, the dire wolf and Rickon being presently there. It's not just something spooky and inexplicable. You do have these these connections to, to something grounded and real. And I think that's something George does a lot of times, like with, with the Night Fort brand chapter in a storm of swords where he's he's telling you all these crazy ghost stories and he's like hearing them in the wind and like you know his <laughs> his hackles are up at every little noise and then the quote-unquote monster he hears turns out to just be sam climbing a well so it's like you go oh that's perfectly physically and grounded but then sam takes brandon company down to this really weird gate the black gate that's like made of a weirwood face and opens its giant mouth and on the other side is cold hands and his elk so it's not like the magical elements aren't there it's just that George is setting up these complex relationships between the secular elements and the supernatural elements and wanting us to kind of get into that relationship and tease it out. And that's something you see him doing very much in this chapter. You have this debate between the rational world and the supernatural world and the characters struggling to reconcile the two. And again, I think a balance between those is the goal of all the dichotomies that George is working through in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's not that either ice and fire is good and the other one is bad. It's that you have to try to find a synthesis between the two. And that's that's true for a lot of the, the wars we see being fought and a lot of the kind of internal struggles we see in characters like John saying to Theon on the show, you, you're a Greyjoy and a Stark. I think that's that's the kind of end game George is going for. There's this great line in this chapter when, when Bran is thinking about Stark history. The maester had told him the stories and old Nan had made them come alive. That's great. Hmm. So you need both. You need the, the actual information the data that Maester Lewin can feed you. And then you need Old Nan to explain to you what it means, because that's what Lewin is kind of lacking here. He's lacking that element to make it real and personal and matter to these boys. It's just a list, and he, he can't quite uh, square that circle. So the way he tries to do it is to tell his own story. He tries to tell a story about the children of the forest that acknowledges the magical elements existed and then explain what happened to them so he can make sense of his framework as living in a post-magic world, which is what he's trying to impress on Bran and Rickon. But he, he still gives, gives the game away with his dragon glass arrowheads. Like he's, he's insisting on calling them obsidian and holding them up as an example <laughs> of the world that's gone. But if that world is really gone and has no impact on how you live your life today, why do you still have them at all, buddy? Why, why, are, they, why are you still sitting around? He must have a bunch of them because Rickon has, gets four and Bran gets one and Lewin seems fine with that. So he has a bunch just hanging out. Why is that? Maybe because at some level, Lewin is still the, the teenager who cut his hands on the glass candle at Old Town when he was going through his vigil to be a maester. You know, the glass candle that represents the connection to the magical world and your inability to light it as young maester is supposed to keep you away from from the magical elements. But Lewin really did love that stuff. And in some element, he still really does. That's that's why he's trying to get Bran to give it up so much. Like if Lewin really was detached from the magical world, he'd be less insistent about this. Him trying to debunk Bran's theories is him trying to debunk the part of himself that still believes. He wanted to wield that sword without a hilt. As he describes the children dueling with a glass sword, that's what it meant to deal with to sorcery and spells. It's the same way Dala describes it in A Storm of Swords, that the sorcery is a sword without a hilt. It's this, it's this force that you can't really mess with that will take control of you. Even in the present day, long after Lewin was that, that impressionable teenager at the Citadel, he admits in a distracted moment, as you noted in your synopsis, that, man, he would really love magic if it meant he could heal his wounds instantly and get Shaggy to behave. That's how it starts, man. We just saw that with Danny and the blood magic. All it takes is that, that relatable motive. All it takes is that good thing you want to get done. And suddenly blood magic starts to not seem so bad anymore because you got this important thing you need to get done. And it's a very convenient tool. And so you, you have this narrative from Lewin of... The modern world of men, 
as a classic thing in fantasy. You know, fantasy is, is rooted in older European centuries, and then uh, mankind often represents the industrial world, kind of overtaking that world of, of elves and hobbits and small English villages. So you have Lewin's narrative of the, that modern world first attempting harmony with the children, the balance I was just talking about, and actually managing to achieve it. The children achieve this this pact with the first men, sealed on an island at the center of the continent, the eye of the gods themselves, presided over by the order of the green men, whose very name speaks to a cohesion between the children and the human. They're green, mm-hmm. connected to the green seers and the natural of the children, but they're green men, humans, not children. So there's a, a link in a sense that we finally put these two together. And then the Andals came and threw off their and just threw off the balance with their their jealous gods and their hungry fires. And I think you can see George making an argument that each wave of immigration from Essos made that problem worse. That after the Andals, you get the Targaryens, and they're even more committed to fire, and they're even more jealous about their power. And then you get the Relorites, and they're actively burning weirwoods again. So you, you get the sense that every wave. You know, while they certainly have their strengths in, in internal debates like anybody else were getting less and less reasonable and less and less able to make this harmony with what came before and the children of the forest. And, and so the whole balance between the political and magical that we've been talking about was, was thrown off. And uh, Lewin, of course, gets, gets cut off before he can talk about what happened next, before <laughs> he can talk about what happened when the children fled north away from the Andals and their fires and their gods. And then there was this huge backlash from the remnant of the magical world that remained. And Lewin doesn't get to tell that part of the story, but that's because Bran is going to tell that part of the story. It's, it's the backlash from the remnant, the persisting power of the children of the forest and the White Walker is going to form the spine of Bran Stark's story going forward. Uh, that's that's great. Yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's cool, though, that as Lewin is relating the story and he's a, he's a, he's admitting that there was magic back in the day. Of course, the, the old songs had spoken about how the green seers had called down some sort of magic to break the arm of Dorne to prevent easy crossage across the narrow sea. But you also have Osha there who's like, children are still around, bro. Like they're north of the wall now. They might not be around here, but they are still existing around then. And you do kind of wonder, like, Lewin is rational and it's skeptical, but you do kind of wonder, like, <laughs> you do wonder whether like his rejection of Osha and her very realistic and rational statement that the children of the forest exist north of the wall. Like maybe Lewin should interrogate that being be like, Hey, so wait, you said that the children north of the wall, have you met a child of the forest? Have you interacted with them? What are they like now? Like kind of that scientific skeptical side of himself. But because he has to kind of kill the boy himself, Lewin, he has to kind of push that aside and be like, woman, you should be in chains or be dead for all the the stupid stories and tales that you tell the Starks. And you know, that's, it's interesting though, because like that's, as you talked about, Lewin does get his story cut off by the arrival of the Raven there, or rather by the howling of the of the direwolves and the arrival of the Raven. But like we talked about all the way back in episode 24 with our friend Manuclear Bomb, storytellers being cut off from telling their stories to Bran is a super defining feature of both Bran's fourth chapter and Bran's seventh chapter, this chapter. You know, back in episode 24, it was Old Nan telling the story of the others and how uh, and how the last hero was going off into the woods and all his fires were going out, his friends were all dead. And even his dog was dead and his horse was dead. And of course, Bran remembers the story at the end of that chapter that the children will save them. The children will save him. And, but here in episode 66, it's the story of the children of the forest that gets cut off. We'll talk a little bit more about the children of the forest in a bit. But it's fascinating that the story and build up to the children is found in Bran's chapters. And, and per my exhaustive research, 
I, I just looked it up in a search of Ice and Fire, guys. The Children of the Forest come up 25 times in Bran's chapters, and overall there are 53 references to the Children of the Forest in the five novels. So nearly half of the references to the children come from Bran's point of view chapters. And of course, this works as great setup for Bran actually encountering the Children of the Forest in Bran's second and third dance chapters. He's gotten his learn on from Lewin about the history and the old songs about the children, which works narratively for Bran to meet them in person, come and dance with dragons. He's also gotten that as well from old Nan, who's relating, you know, Lewin is more of the here's X, Y, and Z happen in this historical sequential order. But old Nan is spicing the stories with the actual story, the story side of it, which I think is really, really cool. And though we did meet the others through the prologue, and then we'll see them again in Sam's first point of view chapter in Storm of Swords. I think that the fact that the origin story of the others is brought up in Bran's fourth Game of Thrones chapters, well, it means that Bran is going to have an encounter with the others come the Winds of Winter. Perhaps some sort of version of what we saw in season six's episode, The Door, perhaps some other version. But I do think that the buildup and the foundation, the groundwork for the stories being told to Bran and Bran being able to relate the stories means that there, there's going to be some sort of plot payoff in the future for Bran, especially uh, since we saw it in the form of Bran being the children of the forest and learning their songs underneath of, you know, the, the weirwood tree and down in the weirwood cave. I think we're also going to see have Bran encountering the others too and having and seeing those stories come to life in probably some horrific context, which I'm sure George is eagerly looking to release come next week or the week after. I completely agree that that's the structure. I think you can see in Bran's fever dream in his third chapter in this book, just this brilliant glimpse of the world that's awaiting him and the kind of powers he's going to be messing with and the stakes involved in him messing with them. And then George shuts that door on him and us for a while and gradually builds us back up to that kind of magical psychedelic dreamscape world with characters who are talking to Bran about those discussions, stories that got cut off, hints, hints there and there. And he, you know, he builds, builds us up piece by piece. And he, he does that by having these these magical elements present in Bran's story that don't give a, give the game away entirely, like dreams, like the direwolves. I and mean, the direwolves completely kind of disprove Lewin's point simply by their presence south of the wall, which is this completely unusual thing, as they said early on in the book. They came south for a reason. They saved Bran's life for a reason, and now Shaggy has turned on Maester Lewin, the avatar of rational skepticism and building a world without magic. Not in a... I don't mean that to suggest, again, that yeah, Lewin is the antagonist here or gets everything <laughs> wrong, because he does have this very kind of emotional connection to magic himself. And he is clearly doing this not out of like an Alice or Thorne-esque desire to punish Bran and for thinking differently than him, but because he genuinely loves Bran and clearly thinks of Bran as like his own son and wants him to be happy and not to break his heart following these dreams, as he says in this chapter. But Lewin himself will die before the heart tree at the end of book two. The skeptic brought low before an icon of the gods, just like Maester Crescent at the start of book two, dying before Melisandre. And uh, there's a real poignancy to that. And there's a real poignancy, I think, to Lewin insisting that the children exist, quote, only in dreams, or the title for this episode. Because as you said, we'll see in A Dance with Dragons. That's not actually the case. They do very much exist in reality. Osha is bright. Bran will meet them. The person who only exists in dreams is Ned. Ned is the one who's only going to show up in, in dreams like this now for the Stark kids, dreams and visions, and they can't get him back the way they can actually get the children back. And as we said, we're coming off Danny's use of blood magic to stop her own mighty pillar from dying. And in A Storm of Swords, you get that heartbreaking moment where Arya learns that Thoros can bring people back from the dead, and she asks him if he can do the same for Ned, and he, he, he says that he can't. And, uh, you know, he, that's, that's, of course, <laughs> terrible because Arya wants her dad back, but you also know coming off instances like Miriam Osdor that you know, it's it's a very good thing that Thoros is refusing right. that 
And it's very good that Arya isn't actually going down that path because that way leads horrors. And so you, you get to the question of how Bran is going to relate to his own dead. How he's how is he going to relate to these dreams of Ned? How is he going to relate to people coming behind him in the crypts, his predecessors, and his own power to do something about it. We brought up Anakin Skywalker as a cautionary tale relevant to this kind of story before where someone is tempted to the dark side, not necessarily out of a lust for power in and of itself, but out of a power to defeat death and to to take back that which death has taken from you and bring your loved ones back. And that's a strong temptation with the Stark kids as, as they go forward in the kind of generational cycle we were talking about. And what's really the common element between all these stories, between Bran and generation, between Ned's generation, between the children of the forest back in the day, the common element is grief. Grief <laughs> for what the, 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 the world that the children lost and the world that the Starks have lost. And, and you get this devastating end to this chapter is even as Lewin's heart is breaking at the news that Ned is dead and he knows the tragedy this is going to bring for the poor boys, he still clings to his rational grounded role. Even in that moment, he's like, we have to find a stone carver who knows his face. Mm. And that's just so sad. He's still trying to do his job. He's still trying to be the, I am the rational master of this castle while Rob Stark is away. He's still, even in that moment, he's not going, oh my God, your dream came true. This has changed my entire conception of everything. I am a shaman now. <laughs> what he's saying is we have to cling to our, our rational understandings more than ever. And, you know, find someone who can chisel Ned's face. That's what we got to focus on. And that's so relatable and understandable and and lovely even as it kind of indicates at some level that Lewin is still missing the point and he's still not quite understanding what has just been revealed to him and what that means for Bran's path that while Lewin is trying to discourage Bran from these dreams for good reasons Bran ultimately has to follow these dreams wherever they lead him uh, yeah that's amazing man I you know I was, I was thinking about what you were saying last week from Arya's fifth chapter about how you imagine the end point for a Sansa or Arya chapter at the end of A Dream of Spring is Ned Stark coming home and being buried in the crypts of Winterfell. I was thinking as I was rereading this chapter one final time before I came on about how the hole in underneath of the crypts itself kind of symbolizes the hole that all the Stark kids are going to feel with Ned being there. And it's only going to be filled when Ned Stark himself is actually placed into the crypts of Winterfell itself. And then is that hole will be filled and these kids can finally move on with their lives. And I think it's going to be a great way to actually end the series altogether. No, I completely agree. Arya talks about feeling the hole inside after the Red Wedding, that her heart is gone. And then you know, when, when Sandor asks her, do you remember where the heart is? He's not just talking about literally in terms of giving him mercy. He's talking about metaphorically in terms of asking Arya, do you still remember where your soul is, where your love is, where your family is? And Ned literally filling that hole in the crypts, I think, will be metaphorically filling that hole in his children. I think that's a great comparison. So that yeah. takes us to the uh, foreshadowing and groundwork section for this chapter. You mentioned uh, the comet a little bit earlier. And yes, the, the red comet uh, serves mostly as the, the giant Rorschach blot in the sky that George uses as a framing device in The Clash of Kings. But I had forgotten that, yeah, it first shows up here in Brand 7, very, mentioned very briefly in passing as Lewin looks at it through his telescope. And it shows up again in a much more kind of portentous and scene-stealing matter in Danny 10 at the very end of this book, when she sees it as the, the star that is a good omen for Drogo and is the sign she should begin her power, blood red, the, the dragon's <laughs> tail kind of red. So, first of all, that's just kind of interesting. It suggests that maybe the dragon birth takes place the night before this chapter, even though Danny 10 <laughs> happens after Brand 7 in the book. More interestingly, I think it might suggest that while the Red Comet has, of course, many associations, and one of the main points is that everyone is just projecting their own associations onto it, maybe we're meant to take away that the primary associations are Ned Stark's blood, as Arya will think in book two, because we see this, this blood-red comet right after Ned is executed. 
and the other main association being the fire and blood of the dragon's return, as Danny assumes, because the, these are the two big associations we get in book one with the comet, is, is representing Ned Stark's death and, and the rebirth of the dragons. Do you think that's a, a fair association? I think it is, yeah. I, I, and, I, and I do kind of wonder, too, whether George was might have might have been influenced by something like Haley's Comet showing up in 1986, which, you know, George was alive then. I think uh, I, I was alive then. I don't think, I don't think you were. I had, I was, I was but a twinkle in my mother's eye. At that <laughs> but yeah, I always, it's, it's cool to be how comets are, are utilized for various forms of, of symbolism here. And, and various people take different perspectives on what they symbolize. We have Danny assuming that it's the, it's going. It's a good portent for for Drogo. We've got the Tullys thinking that it's yes, it's Tully red, and they're like, not not really. And then we have other people who are thinking that it's Ned Stark's blood or the blood of the War of the Five Kings, Lannister Crimson stuff like that. I, I tend to favor the ideas that it's Ned's blood and that it's going to be the return of of fire and blood as uh, of of the dragons. And and again, I, I do think it's interesting that we have Lewin who's there making the markings on on a pen on pen and paper when in fact it has a deeper meaning potentially in the story because you know comets historically if people have assigned meaning to them it's both birth and death it's both rise and fall as as with all kind of astronomical things the comet blazes across the sky and then it breaks up or it falls to earth and it's done and i think yeah you can see that with a lot of red comet associations but i think the the major ones i think are, are ned's death and the dragon's life it's it's only death may pay for life it's if ned's death is in part paying for the dragon's life through the kind of continuum of the, of the comet uh, speaking of everything associated with the uh, red and fire and blood and Targaryenness, uh, you you have a little bit of interesting backstory here that Bran gets into about Eris and Rhaegar and Robert's rebellion. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because Bran's when he comes up to his grandfather's crypt, he states to Osha that Rickard Stark was quote beheaded by Eris the Second Targaryen, and also that Rhaegar Targaryen quote raped Lyanna Stark. As we learn later from Catelyn's fateful conversation with Jamie in the River Run dungeon, Rickard wasn't beheaded. Sorry to say. And I do mean that, sorry to say. Instead, he was burned to death by Ares while Brandon was strangled trying to save him. And we learn, and granted from the show, though Ned's memories of Rhaegar don't really lend itself to Rhaegar as the evil rapist, that Rhaegar didn't actually rape Lyanna. They were in love and they got married. And you do have to wonder whether Ned allowed these lies to kind of linger in Winterfell to obscure the truth for two seemingly unconnected, but I think they're actually kind of similar reasons, namely preserving innocence or preserving innocence. So Rickard Stark's murder was horrific. And I think Ned thought beheading a much cleaner death than burning. I mean, we do have the first scene with Ned beheading the Night's Watch deserter in the form of Garrod. He didn't, and I think he didn't really want to horrify his wife and children with the truth of what happened to Rickard and Brandon. On the other hand, Ned allowing the lie about Rhaegar seems likely to be a way to preserve the truth about Jon's parentage a secret. Maybe? Uh, I don't know. That one's a little more ambiguous to me, but I do think that the fact that that was a common story in Winterfell, similar to the way that the Ashara Dane being the potential mother figure to, or the mother figure, uh, potentially being the mother to Jon Snow, was a story that Ned allowed to kind of linger for a little bit before he squelched the rumor to Catelyn Stark, is kind of a way that Ned is preserving Jon as an innocent and preserving his life from Robert's fury and Robert's wrath, as, as is said in, in, in The World of Ice and Fire. Now, again, still, it's nice to get a more grounded view of Ned. Yes, he's a good, noble guy at heart, but he's not above letting lies linger to keep his loved ones safe. And I think that's an excellent kind of touch on Martin's part to kind of ground Ned, Ned and his heroism in a way that is 
good and it's a way that preserves innocence and innocence so i think it's really fun even the lie is not without honor as he said to Arya about her sending nymeria away but really thinking of course about the lies he's told to, to keep john safe and i think that's a great point about it, it not just being him covering up this horrible reality with nice simple truths like that's part of what he's doing with allowing people to think that rickard was beheaded but on the other hand he's allowing the story of Rhaegar as a rapist which is actually a much more horrifying grim dark story than mm-hmm. what happened in reality if the show is to be believed in this regard and i think it is so it's interesting it's 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 not just one flip side of the coin it's both it's it's ned sanitizing the truth with one hand while uglifying it with the other both coming together for this one purpose getting at the kind of a unification of opposites we were talking about earlier so yeah i think that's that's a great catch and it's always interesting to think about yeah, and Ned keeping this careful balance of, of, of the conventional wisdom at Winterfell and keeping it from tipping in one direction or the other. So it was interesting to me. And and that backstory, of course, lingers. There's a little detail I didn't notice until this read when uh, Shaggy Dog knocks over Lewin and the torch uh, goes awry. It ends up knocking into the Brandon Stark statue and the flames start licking up his feet. And of course, it wasn't Brandon who was burned alive. Rickard was the one burned alive. But at a, at a more kind of symbolic level, it gets at mm-hmm. the reality of the story not being told, that their, their deaths were considerably more horrible than has we've been led to believe. And that, you know, gets at a lot of the kind of narratives being hidden in this chapter, Bran's dreams and the truth about the children of the forest and this, the stuff that's that's being kept secret from you under underneath like the the sanitized official history that people like Maester Lewin are telling. So yeah, I think that it's really fascinating to get get that backstory for the Starks there. To bring us back to the current generation of Starks, our POV <laughs> Bran Stark, there's a, definitely a, a part of this chapter that stands out very strongly on reread and after having watched season six of the show, which is regarding when Bran is trying to get Hodor to go into the crypt, go into the deep dark places, and is tempted to force him to do so by swatting him on the head. But he holds back, he knows it's wrong, and Maester Lewin, being a good guy, says, yeah, you should kind of be ashamed for even thinking of doing something like that. It doesn't matter that Hodor has a mental disability, he's still a human being and should be treated as such, which is a consistent thing Lewin uh, says when he comes up in Clash of Kings 2, that he thinks Hodor is often mistreated and that's wrong. But come and dance with dragons, we're going to have a very different dynamic. Bran is once again going to want to explore the deep, dark places of the Green Seer Cave, which is like the Winterfell Crypts in a lot of ways, like, you know, this underground space full of a bunch of dead people and a possible hive mind. and But in, in that situation, Bran does force Hodor to go. He doesn't do it physically. He does it psychically, takes control of Hodor's mind and body, forces him to explore those deep, dark places. And unlike the, the good-hearted Lewin, who's, you know, trying to look out for Hodor, his mentor in A Dance with Dragons is Bloodraven. As we've said before <laughs> in this episode, Bloodraven is very much ends justify the means. So you get the sense that if Bloodraven does know about Bran possessing Hodor, forcing him to go down into the dark... He does not disapprove. So that's just a kind of an interesting way, I think, to measure how Bran's story changes. That this thing he's considering doing but wouldn't actually do here in book one becomes something he pretty much unabashedly does in book five. And he's gone from having a mentor who will stop him to having a mentor who will not. Yeah, it's it's really – it still makes my skin crawl. And, and the, the, the worst part about it is that Bran's not totally aware of what he's doing at, at some level. I mean he is – starting to understand i think and i really hope that there is some sort of point in wins where he decides he's not going to do that anymore but it starts so like innocently or it's done for a good thing right it's done for because hodor is hodoring up in the the tower and you have the wildlings all around them and uh, around queen's crown and they need to get Bran to shut up or else they're all going to get captured by the wildlings and Bran has to go into hodor in order to shut him up and kind of get him to pass out 
But by dance, it's not necessarily done for good methods or good means. So I, I do like that kind of slow decline that George utilizes. Like, yes, it's done for completely understandable, perhaps not legitimate methods in, in A Storm of Swords. But by dance, it's um, it's because Bran wants to explore. And that's kind of, it should make your skin crawl, especially how it's contextualized by George's, you know, Hodor had once fought against Bran entering his mind, but by A Dance with Dragons, he's just whimpering i think is i think is the wording that george uses there it's 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 bad it's bad i really hope bran and i think that bran will but i really hope that bran will put that aside at some point in the winds of winter um hopefully before hodor dies in in the winds of winter i think (laughs) you really hope that brands comes uh, has some sort of redemption before hodor actually dies that the separation is not made because hodor dies but i could see george doing it the latter way We'll have Bran's POV and internal struggle, so either way, I think it'll be given a little more nuance and in the show, where uh, we don't have the POV structure, and they, they made a decision to kind of robotify Bran in the later seasons, which I understand why, but I wasn't a huge fan of it. So regardless of when it happens, I do think we will see Bran actively uh, struggle with this, and I do think it's it's supposed to be like the, the dark element in Bran's story, the way assassinating people is the dark element in Arya's story, or Littlefinger's influence is the dark element in Sansa's story, and I think in all three cases they can and will do better than their mentors in this regard, Sansa especially. But I I also think that there is supposed to be some element of all three that sticks with them and that lingers. And I think for Bran, it's, it's, it's the connection to Hodor. Agreed there. So our little final little piece of foreshadowing here is that this is not the only time that a Stark boy and his wolf, of course, hide in the darkness of the crypts at the end of, and in the middle and towards the end of a clash of Kings, Bran and Rickon escape down here along with Osha, Hodor, and the Reeds from Theon and from Theon's attempt to kind of capture them in a Clash of Kings. And then when we get to Jon's chapters in Clash 2, we have Ygritte telling the story of Bale the Bard, which kind of suggests it may have happened historically. And then finally, we have, you know, Mance Raider, who has been theorized to be hiding down in the crypts of Winterfell, kind of resembling the Bale the Bard storyline. And that's the way he's able to kind of do his dastardly heroic deeds one of the two in, in a dance of dragons in uh in killing some of ramsey's boys so i do love the fact that the crypts serve as a place of both horror historical memory but they also serve as a place of shelter and hiding from for for various characters in the story as a way to kind of help to sell this idea that there's history there's magic there's also shelter there and i think it's really cool I think that's great. Yeah, it gets at all the dualities we're talking about in this episode, that the crypt is this place of, of fear and doom for some characters or for just alienation, like when Theon and Barbary are there in dance talking about how they wanted to be Starks but never could be and you have these larger-than-life statues around them almost mocking them, these poor, you know, mere mortals who have tried to join House Stark. But on the other hand, for people who do feel a sense of connection to that tradition, like Bran, it's a place of renewal and hope and, uh, you know, life within death it's a place of rebirth and it's a, another spin on only death may pay for life that only only the crypts the land of death can can save bran and preserve his life in a clash of kings so i hope i hope we see more of the crypts coming forward obviously it's connected to john's story as we suggested earlier i hope there's some more connections between bran and that part of the story too so that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork taking us to more to the theory and discussion side of the podcast as we've mentioned a couple times now, Lewin gets cut off at the precise moment when his story is about to get interesting in classic George style in the same way that he he blots out the revelations about Summerhall and the world of ice and fire. George can't give away the game too much on these critical backstory elements, but it opens up an obvious question. What did happen when the children of the forest fled north? 
And this brings up something that George talked about right when Fire and Blood was published, which is the age of the world. He said, and this is in uh, November 2018 in an Entertainment Weekly uh, interview, where he says, 10,000 years is mentioned in the novels, but you also have places where basers say, no, no, it wasn't 10,000, it was 5,000. Again, I'm trying to reflect real life things that a lot of high fantasy doesn't reflect. In the Bible, it has people living for hundreds of years, and then people added up how long each lived and used that to figure out when events took place. Really? I don't think so. Now, we're getting more realistic dating now from carbon dating and archaeology, but Westeros doesn't have that. They're still in the stage of, quote, my grandfather told me and his grandfather told him. So I think the age of the world is closer to 5,000 years. And I think it's interesting that George made this comment because... The age of the world has been kind of this mini debate among the super nerds in A Song of Ice and Fire, how old the world is and when various events took place in the prehistory and when in the early stages of recorded history. But for me, it doesn't really make sense for a pact of peace to exist between the children of the Force and the First Men for 4,000 years, followed by Edel invasions, then more time, then Aegon's conquest and the Targaryens. It seems like a lot of time that we would that is being integrated into the, into the backstory. So I do think that the age of the world is in question. I do like George's 5,000 years as the actual age of Westeros itself, though that does throw a lot of things that Lewin tells Bran about the Children of the Forest into some doubt and kind of adds a lot of ambiguity as to when certain events happened in the story. It does indeed, and maybe that doubt is, is supposed to be in our minds. Maybe that's a deliberate sowing of mistrust on George's part, that these events are actually a lot more compressed than it appears, and some of them may have happened in a different order or simultaneously instead of with all these thousands of years between them. Like, the way Lewin lays it out, the pact happened between the First Men and the Children of the Forest, and then the long age passed of many, many events, including the Long Night. Lewin frames the Long Night as happening between the pact and the arrival of the Andals, which really doesn't make all that much sense, unless the children were <laughs> holding back the others that whole time and just happened to fail. Like, there's no reason to unleash the omnicidal zombie army in a moment in which you have peace with mankind. That's not when you do that. So maybe Lewin's wrong about the timeline. Maybe the others were actually created in response to the Andal invasion. Maybe when after the children fled north and Lewin's story, you know, to the north and then beyond the wall, maybe they created the others to deal with this new race of men that wasn't abiding by the pact and couldn't be dealt with fairly <laughs> in, in the, um, contrast to the first men. There would be a great irony in that, in that the others attacked the first men first, the wildlings and the, the Stark vassals, who were the ones who kept the deal. So th that's kind of a great hist historical irony there. Or perhaps the others came twice. Maybe they came during the first men, and then the, the pact stopped that, and the children gained control of the others or locked them away in a jar like you do with evil spirits or whatever they did. And then they unleashed them again during the Andals, and the, the second time is where they lost control of them. That's why the children can't <laughs> seem to stop the White Walkers now and need Blood Raven and Bran's help in order to do so. See, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like um, I would love if there was something in, you know, some of the concepts of the Faith of the Seven or some of the history that some of these Andals have, either the Aarons or someone else, which talked about some sort of like white shadows like showing up somewhere. But what I, what I don't see, though, is a sense that the Andals have really much of a, a backstory beyond their invasion fighting with the First Men. And I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And then with all these different shuffling timelines, it opens up questions like, did the wall already exist at this point when the children fled north from the Andal's arrival? If the wall already existed, that implies the Long Night had, had indeed already happened. And so are we, did we already see a version of the others? How does a Night's King fit into this timeline? He was supposedly <laughs> the 13th commander of the Night's Watch and 
Was it still just in the First Men era? Like, how does he fit into the timeline of the children uh, fleeing to the north? Regardless, this opens up a possibility of seeing an echo of the pact at the Isle of Faces. Obviously, a lot of historical events in the backstory of this world are echoed in some distorted form in the current, you know, current day, the present day of the story, so to speak. Are we going to see another pact? I mean, our, our friend Michael, a.k.a. the bookshelf stud, has this idea of King Bran ruling from there at the end. Not from King's Landing, but at the Isle of Faces, association of the coming together of the magical and political elements, the reconciliation of children and human. It's at the literal center of the continent. It, it fits well for, for Bran to be ruling from there, perhaps in another weirwood throne. Regardless, I think there is a, a clear association between Lewin's story and the moment it's interrupted and the arrival of the Dark Wings, Dark Words, bearing news of Ned's death. It's, it's, a, it's significant that George cut him off and then cut him off at that moment when the children were fleeing north to have Ned's death enter this chapter. And the way he frames it, it's, it's as if death is the end of Lewin's story. Mm-hmm. Like the punchline there is, is execution, is grief and loss and bloodshed. And I mean, after all, the show associates the White Walkers with death. So maybe that's what George is alluding there, that the end of Lewin's story is the White Walkers. And well, the White Walkers are associated with death. So, of course, that end will be interrupted by the news of Ned's death. Do you think I'm uh, going, going too far on, on the tree branch there? No, not, you never go too far on the tree branch. You just go long enough. Long enough for me, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that wrong? Does that, is, that, is that weird to say? Not for me, which means it probably is. <laughs> Truth that. Yeah, I mean, like we both have talked about how we love in season two episode, in season eight, episode two, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, how the White Walker motive, as stated by Bran Stark, is how they want to erase all human memory in their history. So, I mean, I, I think, like, considering this chapter, how Bran is reciting the historical memory of the Starks throughout, and how Lewin brings up the old stories of the children of the forest. You know, long before Bran becomes the last green seer, he retains a knowledge of the history of Westeros, the continental history that can never die. It's been passed down in songs. It's been recorded by maesters. You have the stories of the Starks. You've got the stories of the children of the forest. You've got the history there. You've also got old Nan relating the emotions and the kind of spooky way of telling stories, which Bran is retaining. And he's able, like we said in Bran 4, he's able to tell the end of the story. The children will save him. The children will save him. You know, perhaps Bran had the requisite educational pedigree to be groomed by Bloodraven to be the final Greenseer. And was this why Bran was chosen by Bloodraven to be the last Greenseer? Was this the reason why Euron was rejected because he doesn't have any historical memory beyond his own ambition and what he can do in his own self-aggrandizing way? Did Bloodraven see the foundation of historical memory in Bran before selecting him to be the potential last green seer? You know, these are questions that I think that will be likely addressed in The Winds of Winter and in a way that I think is going to be much more in-depth and much more satisfying than the show's version of Bloodraven and Bran's interactions in seasons season six because he wasn't in season five. But I, I do think that it's going to be something that will be explored a lot more. And I do am interested in how – the history is going to be related. And, you know, if the Winds of Winter doesn't reveal the full backstory, we also have the upcoming show, The Long Night or Blood Moon, as it's apparently being called now, which apparently, according to Watchers on the Wall yesterday, has just started filming. So we could see more of the backstory explored more there. And I think that's going to be a fun way to kind of get this kind of completion of Maester Lewin's story to Bran Stark found here in Bran's seventh chapter in the Game of Thrones, whether we see it in The Winds of Winter and the pages there, or in Blood Moon, or The Long Night, whatever the show is going to be fucking called. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Me neither, man. And I love what you were saying about 
that idea of the others going after our history and our knowledge being connected to Bran, and Bran is this ultimate kind of font of story. We've talked about before about how Bran is kind of the fantasy audience, and to an extent, this bright, spunky little kid who just loves his stories and has always swallowed up these narratives but isn't super critical about them. And maybe the point is that he needs to be, not that he needs to abandon story and think life is not a song, so therefore everything is meaningless, I'll just do whatever I want like someone like Euron or Littlefinger would do. But someone who says, okay, if, if songs don't just automatically come true, then it is all the more my responsibility to be the, the guardian of them. Someone who can understand how to make these narratives work and what the, the real history is. And I think that there's something very lovely and meta about that. That, you know, the, the ultimate empowered reader is the one who's going to, to save the world and set things right and kind of and see through all these shifting narratives. And that's going to be the, the reconciliation that we see at the end of the series with Bran, that he will have finished this story that, that Lewin was unable to. And I, I think that's really great. I think that about wraps us up for this episode on A Game of Thrones Brand 7. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You know, it's... um. We're now, I think, two weeks past Game of Thrones season eight ending. I just enjoy getting back into the, like a Game of Thrones itself. I mean, it's it's a different beast, and we talked about this last week and the week before that, of course, as well with Danny Eight and and Arya Five. But I, I do enjoy getting back into the books themselves, and even though this chapter is not super climactic, I do uh, I love it all the same. So it's really fun doing doing this with you, man. Me too, buddy. Fun as always. And I agree, it's fun to get back to basics, so to speak. So as always, guys, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play, wherever you find our fine podcasts. Check us out on Spotify if you haven't already, because we're on there now. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Patrons get early access to our episodes, access to monthly patron-only episodes, the chance to ask us a question on the podcast, as you saw with Javi at the beginning of this one. And if we reach our $5,000 a month stretch goal, you're getting a lot more of those patron-only episodes, specifically on the subject of George Amara Martin's 1982 vampire novel Fever Dream. So check that out if you have not already. You can follow us at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is morrisonpoliticsadviceandfire.wordpress.com. So, join us next week for a Game of Thrones um, Catelyn, right? We're doing a Catelyn chapter next. Nice try, buddy. It's going to be a Game of Thrones Sansa 6 as the roulette wheel of Stark Pain just keeps on spinning. And we will be joined by a new guest, our friend McCall Schick, who is a writer for Hypable, one of the co-hosts of the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast and also a co-host of the Nice Jewish Fangirls podcast. McCall is just great. We've had an uh, awesome time talking about this story with her online a ton and reading and hearing her own thoughts about it. And we're, uh, you know, I'm a big Sansa fan. She's a big Sansa fan. You, um, you tolerate Sansa, so <laughs> we thought this would be we thought this would be the perfect episode to bring McCall on. So we're super excited about that. I, it's going to be great to have McCall on. But I just want to say for the record, much as Barack Obama said about Hillary Clinton in 2008, I like Sansa just fine. Ooh, wow. That was just, that was beautifully topical on so many levels, sir. Ah, what a, what a note to leave them with. So thanks so much for listening, guys, and we will see you with McCall right here next week.